Please turn with me in your Bibles. Um, We'll read the passage that we're going to be looking at a little bit later on. We're in Paul's epistle to the Thessalonians, Paul's first epistle to the Thessalonians. So towards the very end of our Bibles, we find this epistle, and it's Paul's first one to the church in Thessalonica, and we'll read chapter 1 together this morning. So 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labour of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you, For your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. From you, for from you, the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. It's AD 51, It's about 18 years after Jesus' crucifixion and about 15 years after Saul's conversion on the road to Emmaus. And Saul, now Paul, is on his second missionary journey and he's in Thessalonica. Now what's the purpose of Paul's second missionary journey? A year or two previously, Paul had said this to Barnabas, Let's go back and visit our brethren in every city we have preached the word to and see how they're doing. Now I wonder if you went back to every city, every place that you'd shared the gospel, or to every person you'd shared the gospel to, how far would you have to go? How far would I have to go? How long would it take? It's a challenge, isn't it? Paul had taken Silas, his companion, with him on this second missionary journey. And they'd begun, they'd begun to visit churches in modern-day Turkey, which he'd previously established on his first missionary journey. So Paul and Silas had left Antioch, Paul's main base. And they'd began to revisit these churches. They'd gone to Derby. They'd gone to Lystra, where they'd met the young Timothy, and brought him with him with them. Now they wanted to go to Asia to preach the gospel while they were there, but 
the Spirit stopped them. And Paul had a vision from the Lord of a man from Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece, who asked him to come to them to preach the gospel. And this changed the direction of Paul's planned journey. So Paul, with Silas and with Timothy, they started to travel to Greece for the first time. And they started with the foremost city in Greece, Philippi. Now what happened in Philippi? We heard a few weeks ago from Roger, Lydia is saved. Paul and Silas are beaten and imprisoned for casting out the demon of the slave girl. Now we've recently been thinking, haven't we, about the fruit of the Spirit, joy, peace. If that happened to you and I, we were beaten and put into prison for doing good, how would we react? I'm sure I'd struggle to feel joy in that moment and feel peace in that moment. And I'm sure Paul and Silas were tempted to, to and struggled also. They are human. But what did they do in prison in Philippi? They prayed and they sang. Are you in a situation where you're struggling maybe to feel joy and peace? Pray to God. Cast all your cares on him. Sing to God, reminding yourselves of biblical truths. And we were reminded of that last week, weren't we? Paul and Silas were released from prison. The jailer was saved. And a few weeks ago, um, they departed Philippi. And now, AD 51, they've arrived in Thessalonica. Thessalonica, the, the city in modern-day Greece. It's in the northeast of Greece. It's a city about a third of the size of Liverpool. When Paul and Silas and Timothy arrive, they're walking through the streets, and what do they see in this city? They see lots of ordinary, working-class people who are Greeks. They see a, a few Jews living there. They see a city full of Greek mythology, idol worship, shrines, incense, altars everywhere. As well as the Greeks and the Jews who are living in Thessalonica, they see many visitors of the city. It's a busy city. Merchants, shopkeepers, sailors, Roman soldiers. Thessalonica is a busy port town and it's on the main trade route from uh, modern day from Rome, sorry, to modern day Turkey. And it's a major stopping place on this route. And so in Thessalonica, it's full of trade, it's full of visitors, it's full of sailors. People from every culture in the known world at that time are here in Thessalonica. And when Paul arrives here, what's the first thing he does? You may remember last year I preached on Paul arriving in Ephesus. What was the first thing he did there? He went to the synagogue and he went and reasoned with the Jews. And I gave the illustration of my dad when we used to be on holiday. Uh, we'd often visit a museum of some sort and we'd be looking at all the exhibits in the museum and suddenly we'd turn around and we'd, we'd have lost dad. We'd think, where's, where's he gone? And we'd always find him in the same place. We'd look a few exhibits back where we'd just been and there he was. He was still there reading the signs. 
He was reading all the detail of what we were there. We just looked and we'd pass on. He was there reading the signs. And we'd always say, typical dad, that's, that's where you'll find him. Well, what does Paul do when he arrived in Ephesus? Now, when he arrives in Thessalonica, he goes to the synagogue. It was his custom. He reasons with the Jews and he preaches Christ to the Jews. Now, some Jews here in Thessalonica, some Jews believed. Many Greeks believed. And we read in Acts, lots of the leading women of the city believed. And there's a church here in Thessalonica established. And they don't begin to meet in a, a building like we are this morning. No, they, they meet in the house of Jason. Now, not everyone believed. There were a great number of the Jews in the, in the synagogue who became envious. And we read in Acts... Uh, in chapter 17, they started a riot and they attacked Jason's house, the meeting place of the Christians. And the church sent Paul and Silas away to a neighbouring town, Berea. A few months have passed by and a letter arrives at this church in Thessalonica. Thessalonica. And it's a letter from Paul And Silvanus, that's the Roman name that Paul always uses in his letters to speak of Silas. And it's a letter from Timothy. And these three people who left a few months ago, well, they're now in Corinth. But the church in Thessalonica, they remember them. They remember when they arrived and they had bruises on their face, Paul and Silas at least. They had lashings on their back of when they were in prison And they remember the gospel that they preached to them. And they remember how the gospel has taken a hold of their lives and they've been changed and transformed. And they've received a letter. And it's a letter of encouragement. It's a warm letter. Now if we look through the book of Acts, only 10 out of 1,007 verses in the book of Acts are dedicated to Paul's time in Thessalonica. Yet from this short visit of only a few weeks in Paul's life, we, what comes of that is two letters that we have in our New Testament. And they're letters full of encouragement. They're letters full of instruction. And they're letters full of godly example for New Testament believers. And so this morning we're going to turn to this first of Paul's letters to this church in Thessalonica and it's a young church it's an enthusiastic church it's a new church and as we turn to this first chapter we're going to have a look at three things that Paul says that this church is so as we do that let's remind ourselves of what we should be also we're here in working class middle class autumn English speaking autumn in September 2023. This chapter applies to us as much as it did to these Thessalonians. So how does Paul introduce this letter? In verse 1, Paul, Silvanus and Timothy. It was the, the tradition back then that you didn't sign your name at the end of a letter. You started with who the letter's from. And then you go on to say who you're writing to to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. 
and then there's a greeting to open the letter. So the first thing we see about this church is that the Thessalonian church is people who are changed. They're people who are changed. Paul calls this church the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this world that we live in is divided. The street you live in is divided in two. The university you attend, the school you go to, the office you work in, it's divided. Not into male and female, or red and blue, but it's divided into those who are in God and those who are outside of God. People who've been rescued from sin and people who are still in their sins. Some people have been called out to be different, to be in God and in Jesus Christ, and they know God as their Father and Jesus Jesus Christ as their Lord. And Paul calls these people here, in his opening to this letter, not just Thessalonians, but the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, they're still Thessalonians, but they're no longer just Thessalonians. These people are the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're different. They're changed. They've got a new identity. If you're a Christian, you are no longer who you once were. You're no longer just a student. You're no longer just an engineer, a doctor, a teacher. You're a student in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're an engineer in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you living as that? Am I living as that? Are our lives marked by being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ? That's our new identity and our lives should bear witness to that, to people around us. Now, one of the things that Jane and I like to do, we always joke that we're kind of an old couple because we like doing this. We like going to garden centres and we like looking at all the plants in garden centres. And if you go to a garden centre, you'll see some maybe some shrubs over here. There's maybe some bedding plants over here. You go into that section, there's some fruit trees over there. If you go to a garden centre, you get a trolley and you go around all these individual plants and you choose the ones that you want. You put them in your your trolley, you go and pay for them, you take them home. And the first thing you should do when you get home is plant them into your garden. So that rose bush that that you bought, it's no longer just a rose bush. It's now a rose bush in your garden. It's gone from an individual plant to being planted in a group of plants. It's now in your garden. It's yours. You've chosen it. You've bought it. What causes these Thessalonians to no longer be individual Thessalonians, but to be a group of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ? God has chosen them. Christ has bought them. So we see that these Thessalonians are a changed people. They are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing we see of these Thessalonians is they are a people who are chosen. So there are people who are changed, 
and they are a people who are chosen. They've been chosen and God has chosen them to be in himself. In verse 4, Paul says, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. They've been chosen to be the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember when I first went on United Beach Mission quite a few years ago. When you first sign up, you get sent a little pack in the post and it's information and uh, booklets and CDs that will encourage you when you're on beach mission and tell you a little bit about what's going to happen and aim to prepare you for your week on beach mission. One of the things that I received was a CD. Um, And it was a CD about um, explaining things that are going to happen when you're on beach mission and encouraging you to to witness and how to share the gospel. And I thought as I was driving to um, driving to Wales, I'll I'll listen to this in the car on the way. And there was a part of the CD where there were two two men, two people who were leaders on Beach Mission, and they were talking about sharing the gospel. And one of them talked of William Hunt's painting. I don't know if you've you're familiar with it, Light of the World. And it's a, a painting of Jesus, and it's a painting of Jesus knocking on a door, and they were talking about this painting and how how should we share the gospel, and one of these men said something along the lines of, William Hunt chose not to paint a handle on the outside of the door because Jesus never forces himself into your life, He, he just knocks, and he waits for you to open the door to him. Now, what do you think of that? That's not what the New Testament teaches, is it? God doesn't just knock at the door and wait and wait and wait. No. The language of the New Testament speaks of God choosing, God electing. It's God who forces himself into our lives. God would not be sovereign if humans chose whether they wanted to be saved or not. And worse, Jesus, our saviour, he would have suffered and died in vain if humans chose whether or not they wanted to be saved because we're all dead in our sins. So not a single one of us would choose to be saved or could choose to be saved. It would be like throwing a life ring to a dead body in the sea and just shouting out, come on, choose whether or not you're going to be saved. Grab hold of it, come on, make your choice. You need to be saved. Grab hold of it. Nothing's going to happen. We're dead in our sins. So how did these people become in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ? They were chosen. Jesus in John's Gospel says, You have not chosen me. I chose you and appointed you. In Paul's letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells the Ephesian church, God chose us in him. And it was before the foundation of the world. Later, in Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, Paul writes, God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. God chose you to believe, to which he called you by a gospel. God called you. Those plants from the garden centre, they can't choose themselves to become planted in our garden. 
Yet the wonder of God's election is that he chose us, not because we were attractive, like the plants we might choose. Oh, I like that one. I'll take this one. I like that one. I'll take this one. No. God chose us when we were utterly offensive to him. God chose us when we were still in our sins. We turned our back on him. We'd rejected the very one who formed us and gave us life and gave us the breath that we take. We were made to live by God and for God in God's world, yet we completely turned our back upon our creator. Are you still living like that today? Do you know that you're, you're not in fellowship with God's people? You know truly that you've not been saved. You've, you've not had that experience of the joy of turning from your sins and turning to Christ and knowing your sins forgiven and having the assurance of that. If you are still living against God, I, I urge you to stop. Stop running away from God. Come to him in repentance as, as we read the tax collector does in the Gospels and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the only thing that you can do. And if you do that and God saves you, you'll look back in wonder and you'll realise that God had chosen you and God had opened your heart and God had caused you to cry out to him in such a way. These Thessalonians have been chosen. They've been elected. The word election comes up not as often in the New Testament as the word chosen, but think of an election. An election needs a candidate, doesn't it? This week in our my first week in school, one of the things we've had to do is choose our school counsellors, two children from each class. And you can't have an election without candidates. There must be somebody to choose. But the children that wanted to be part of school council, they couldn't choose themselves to be part of school council. It was something outside of themselves that chose them. Now we had a vote and the winning children got a place on school council. But it was something outside of themselves that chose them. So who or what is it that chooses us to be saved and to be in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's God himself. Every saved soul is a work of God. It starts with God. If we want to see saved souls, we must start with God. We need to earnestly pray to God and beg God to work in saving power. An encouragement for us is we know he does. We've seen it in our lives, I'm sure. We are a testament to that. People in our family, friends. So keep praying. Keep spreading the gospel. God has his chosen people. And they're out there somewhere. He knows who they are. So keep sharing the gospel. Those that God has chosen, they will be saved. And they will come to him. And we can rejoice in that. And we pray that those people will be some of our unsaved family members, colleagues, friends. So keep going. Keep praying. Keep sharing the gospel. So this church in Thessalonica, they are a changed people. They are now in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are people who have been chosen. It was God who chose them. And thirdly, we see that the Thessalonian church is 
people who are examples to others. They're a church known for being an example to others. And we're going to see three people or three groups of people that they are examples to in the remaining time we have this morning. So who are they examples to? Well, firstly, they're examples to Paul, Silas and Timothy. Remember, Paul, Silas and Timothy had left them a few months ago. And they're writing this letter, sending it back to the Thessalonians. And the first thing that Paul says after his greeting in verse 2, we give thanks to God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labour of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God and Father, our God and Father. So Paul, Silas and Timothy, they're remembering when they were with this church. I wonder if you visited the church a few months ago. I visited the church when we were on beach mission in August, maybe about a month ago. And being honest, I struggle to remember them in prayer and, you know, should definitely pray for them. But this church are definitely an, an example to Paul and Silas and Timothy. They remember them. And there's three things here that Paul remembers. Three things that sticks out in his memory about this church. Let's read verse 3 of chapter 1. What does Paul remember of this church? Remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labour of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the sight of God and our Father. Faith, hope, love. Stuart Elliot describes faith as this, knowing the truth, believing it to be true, and putting all your weight upon it. It's one thing knowing the truth. The Bible says even the demons know that Jesus is God. It's another thing believing it to be true and putting all your weight upon it. Faith, knowing the truth, believing it to be true and putting all your weight upon it. So if you've really got faith, it's a faith that will move you to work because you've put all your faith upon Jesus Christ. Therefore, you can't live the same. You've got to live in light of what you now believe to be true. This church had a work of faith that was noticed by Paul. And their labour of love. Now, when we say love these days, we often think of a tickly feeling that maybe runs down our spine when we see something we like. Maybe an emotion that is stirred up within us. But that's not what love is. In YL, before the summer, we went through a series on love and marriage. And um, Pastor Vody Borkham in, uh, from America, he described love as this in his series. I think this is very helpful. He said, love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. So it's an act of the will. It's a choice that we make. It's accompanied by emotion. It's got some feeling behind it. But it leads to action on behalf of its object. Something happens. You do something for somebody else. That's what love is. And this church, they labour in love. 
They work hard to do good to each other. They go out of their way to do good to each other. They would shed blood for the good of each other. That's what Christ did for us. And the third thing we see, their patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. They know that Jesus is coming back and they can't wait for that day. They have their minds set upon the coming again of Jesus. Do you? Do I? How often do we think of the coming of the Lord Jesus again? I don't think about it as often as I should at all. But what hope it brings when we do, when we live with that mindset that Jesus is coming again, that changes our whole perspective on life. And this church in Thessalonica, Thessalonica, they they got it, they grasped it. They lived in the patience of the hope of our Lord Jesus Christ coming again. And it had an impact on Paul. He remembered them. The effect of conversion is to bring people to a point where they have faith, they have hope, and they show love. Paul says, I remember these things in you, and I know you're converted because these are the evidences in your life. So they're an example to Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Secondly, they're an example to other believers, maybe believers they not even met. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the, of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believe. Greece was divided into these two great provinces. And in both provinces, there are those who heard the example of the church in Thessalonica. And they know what a church should look like. Here at Autumn Park, are we an example to other believers as well? When other believers come to visit with us, are we an example to them? When we spend time with other believers at prayer meetings or conferences, do they see us living by faith, loving each other, patiently and actively hoping for Jesus' return? They were an example to other believers who noticed and were encouraged and were challenged by their lives. Thirdly, they're an example to unbelievers. In verse 8, Paul says, For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Now Paul He's now in Corinth, a few months after he was in Thessalonica, but he's coming across people all the time who've heard the news of this church in Thessalonica. Remember, it was a busy port town. There were sailors passing through, tradespeople, Romans, passing through this town all the time. And Paul's heard reports of people who've been touched by the gospel because of this new young church. There were changed people in Thessalonica, and people are hearing about it. And what have they heard? Verse 9. For they themselves declared concerning to us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, 
even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Three verbs for being a Christian. Turned, serve, wait. They've turned to God from idols. Whatever you've lived for before, it's an idol. If you're a Christian, you've turned and you're now living for God. Don't go back. They serve the living and true God. Serving isn't just going to church on a Sunday. Serving God is giving your whole life over to him. Every day, every activity, knowing that you are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's your new identity. And they wait for the coming of the risen Jesus again to deliver them from the wrath to come. God's wrath is coming. As we saw before, you're either in God the Father or you're outside of him. And in line, in the line of his wrath. If we believe that, we truly believe that, what are we doing about it? This church were an example in spreading the gospel to people who came through their town and their city. If you went out onto the street, went a few hundred metres down the road and asked people, what do you know about Autumn Park Baptist Church? What would they say? Maybe, I don't know much. I've never seen anyone from there, never spoken to anyone from there. If we truly believe that heaven and hell awaits every person who's lived, what are we doing about it? What are we doing about it? I'm going to close with this. I never thought I'd ever hear a sermon which closed with a quote from an atheist, but this is one of them. Um, Penn Gillette, who is from the magician duo Penn & Teller, you may have heard of them. They're an American um, duo who are quite famous for, for being magicians. Now, Penn is an atheist, but I found this a real challenge. This is what he said. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it's socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody to not evangelise? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? Let's pray that God would give us the strength, the courage, and just the desire to share the most important message that this world has known with others. Amen. In a few moments, we're going to meet around the Lord's table, remembering the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love that he's shown. Before we do that, we'll sing our closing hymn and we'll sing about the love that has been shown by our Lord. Here is love, vast as the ocean. Number 242 in Christian hymns.